This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 71, May 24, 1984. Last time I dealt with a book on the communist infiltration of uh, Masonic lodges, Stephen Knight's book, The Brotherhood. I said at the time that it has not been published and is not available in the United States. However, I now learn from the Phoenix letter for May the 3rd, 1984, that this book will be published later this year by Stein and Day in the United States. The Phoenix Report comments, Knight shows that the KGB used Freemasonry to infiltrate British intelligence. While it is not new that Sir Roger Hollis, head of MI5, was a Soviet agent, it is news that the Soviets used the old boy Masonic network to put Hollis in the top intelligence slot. Of more immediate concern and well covered by night is the influence of Masonry in the British police, which also have counterintelligence functions. The extent of corruption is awe-inspiring enough to make an honest mason leave the fraternity in disgust. One highly placed police officer who tried to warn top levels in the British government was set up, disgraced, and dismissed. We know from other sources that Knight has only tipped the edge of this story. Good solid reporting, but lacks backup documentation. End of quote. Well, now to go on to other matters, I'd like to deal with a book which is now very much out of print. It was written by Alec Glassford, published in London in 1965. The title, The Anti-Pope, Peter de Luna, 1342-1423. This is a very interesting account, but my concern with this book is less with the personalities than with some of the issues that are very, very relevant for our time. I've been reading in this period and others because of my work on a church and state uh, uh, relationship book, which, by the way, is nearing conclusion and probably by the end of summer, will be completely written and typed and all the tapes of it available. Now, to me, the interesting thing in this book is that uh, it tells us some interesting things. The Avignon captivity of the church has been very much decried by some historians. The French kings, the most powerful of their day, brought the papacy under their jurisdiction and to a degree controlled it. Their next step afterwards was when the popes returned to Rome, a Gallicanism, to virtually sever the relationship of the Catholic Church within France with the Vatican. However, that's another story. Now, it is a significant fact that during the Avignon 
stay what the popes did because they no longer had the freedom to veto the policy of kings was to set to work methodically to control the clergy. And in the course of almost 70 years of residence at Avignon, the seven French popes created an administration and a bureaucracy in the church which changed it radically. It is interesting that the other pope who was the great administrator and greatly increased the bureaucracy of the church uh, virtually to its modern dimensions was Alexander the Borgia Pope. In other words, the Avignon Popes and the Borgia Pope having little concern with speaking to the critical issues of the day concentrated on building up a power structure and a bureaucracy within the church. I think we can say that as the churches, Protestant and Catholic, in the modern age have become less and re less relevant to the world around them, to the issues of the day, they have become more and more bureaucratic within. They have stressed building up ecclesiastical power, control of the church machinery, rather than fulfilling the historic mission of the church. It is interesting, by the way, that uh, in the course of the Avignon captivity and subsequently the great schism, when one churchman said that instead of all the jockeying for power, what they should be doing is to minister to the needs of the people and to evangelize. The reaction to this was one of embarrassment. They had really forgotten what it was all about. In fact, one of the contestants for power, an anti-pope, did something unusual among all the claimants for power. To vindicate his particular position, and mind you, this man was a legal expert. He went to the Bible to try to justify his position and was somewhat startled by what he found. Well, <laughs> the result was that the papacy changed greatly as a result of Avignon. It was followed then by the great schism. Now here again, I want to deal with a subject that is relevant to our time, misguided and impractical zeal. Prior to the time that there was an actual full-scale return to Rome, Urban V, a man of some piety, tried to take himself and the Curia to Rome. And the result was an incredible experience. It failed. Rome was an impossible place. The buildings were in ruins. The Lateran had been burnt down twice in the 
century. There were bread riots in the city and hired cutthroats on every side street. The Romans, who numbered about 20,000 people at that time, were a lawless and savage group. They very quickly drove the Pope to take refuge in Viterbo, and then he was besieged there, and it was only by being let down from the walls by a rope in the dark that the Pope escaped with his life. The Papal States were in virtual anarchy. Governing them from Rome, the Avignon Popes had only collected taxes. Their governors had been corrupt men, and the city of Rome was no fit habitation for anyone. Now, what was required in that situation was one very simple fact, a period of reform from Avignon. Popes who would appoint good men and follow through with men who would inspect the work of their governors so that law and order could be reestablished in the Papal States. Then a change to Rome would have been possible. Now it was at this point one of the most remarkable persons of the entire period showed a misguided zeal, St. Catherine of Siena. Now St. Catherine, who died at 33, and who in her brief years accomplished far more than many popes as far as her influence on the church is concerned, erred here in compelling that the move be made without any regard to the circumstances. Now, Pope Gregory XI, Urban V's successor, decided that the move had to be made. Catherine of Siena was a very difficult person to uh, say no to, especially for churchmen who were church politicians. The presence or the epistles of an authentic saint were very hard to resist. When Catherine went to uh, Avignon, it was very, very difficult for anyone to escape the fact there was something supernormal about this woman. Her letters, by the way, to the popes were amazing documents. And, uh, for example, she wrote in one letter to Gregory that... Uh, his administrators in the Papal States were bad. And uh, people smell the stench of the way of life of many of your governors, and you know they are incarnate demons. Father, I beg mercy for them. Forget their presumption and pride. I tell you, sweet Christ on earth from Christ in heaven, that when you act thus, Without anger, they will at once come and bow down their heads before you in repentance 
then you will rejoice, and we too. O sweet Daddy, make haste to raise up the banner of the Most Holy Cross, and you shall see the wolves become lambs. Well, that was hardly realistic. The wolves were not about to become lambs just because the Pope told them to be. Uh, by the way, when she spoke to the popes, the translators would not translate uh, Sweet Daddy. <laughs> they uh, were afraid to do so. Well, at any rate, she nagged uh, the pope into going to Rome. Well, it was a nightmare, a thorough nightmare. And in no time at all, the Pope was dead. It was a sick situation. There were no facilities for any decent living. They were living in what amounted to ruins and shambles. And so, with the Pope dead, the cardinals were faced with the choice of another Pope. Well, how are you going to choose a Pope in a city that is ruled by hoodlum gangs. And these gangs demanded that uh, the cardinals name an Italian or else. As a matter of fact, while the cardinals were deliberating or rather nervously talking about what they could do, the demand shifted from an Italian to a Roman and the lives of the cardinals were at stake. So at this time, they did something that is very, very interesting. I have said that when the church was not able to speak to kings and rulers, it began to bureaucratize and control its own clergy, over-control. Well, people rose up in the ranks who were nothing but nitpicking bureaucrats. And uh, one of them was a churchman named Prignano. And Prignano was uh, a nitpicker, a person who could be depended upon to take all the details and to mind and to run all the errands and do exactly what he was told. He was also Italian. Well, with the mob howling for the blood of the cardinals and the cardinals afraid for their lives, they decided they had better elect Prigdano and let him resign later when the situation was stable enough and they could have an honest election. At least this was their story. Certainly, it does seem obvious that they were afraid for their lives and with good reason, given what was happening in the streets and what happened later. So Prigdano was elected and took the name of Urban the Sixth and it immediately went to his head. He scoffed at the idea of resigning. He confused himself with God. He acted arrogantly. And all of the cardinals, even 
Peter de Luna, a lawyer and a cardinal who was very close to Prignano and had respected his abilities, finally realized in horror that they not only had a man out of control, but a madman. Moreover, this madman who ranted and raved at them for their ostensible corruption had a nephew whom he was promoting to all kinds of positions who was incredibly corrupt. The nephew was known as, uh, his name was Francesco Prignano, and he was known commonly as Butilo or Tubby. Well, Tubby set the whole of Rome in ferment by kidnapping a young nun of a noble family and holding her for some time in his lodgings and raping her systematically. When this was called to the attention of Urban VI, he excused his 40-year-old nephew with the words, He is only young. Now, this was the supposed great reformer. Well, the cardinals met in a state of shock and horror. This was like a descent into hell. Avignon had been a civilized place, and the popes had been civilized, able administrators, and now they had a madman or someone who is at least just a little short of a madman. So they felt they were justified in doing something and placing the man under some form of restraint. So they had a meeting about it. Now, here is the critical point I'm building up to. These were products of Avignon. They were products of a bureaucracy. So what did they do when they conspired to get rid of a pope? They took notes. They made a full record of their proceedings, which were immediately confiscated by the pope's agents when they found them, and the men arrested, and in time all of them, except one who escaped, and uh, those who were not present for one reason or other were savagely tortured, savagely tortured, with Tubby or Butillo standing and laughing and Urban VI pacing outside and shouting instructions. They were all killed, finally. Well, this is the bureaucratic mentality. As Otto Scott reminded me, one prominent corporation executive took $100,000 on instructions in cash to a Nixon cabinet member. This kind of shakedown of industry is a regular thing by whatever party is in power. And Corporations regard it as a license to stay in business and not to be framed on something or other. 
So after taking the $100,000 in cash to the cabinet member, what did he do but promptly make a full record of the transaction and put it in the files where our federal agents in due time spotted it and then they were in serious trouble. So we have that same bureaucratic mentality all around us, very much with us in our day. By the way, an interesting uh, point in the book. Let me quote. Relations between the popes and the civil, uh, civic authorities on the capital have almost always been strained, right, right down to the time when a town planning committee of Freemasons carefully designed a whole district so that the dome of St. Peter's should not be visible at the end of each street. The medieval Romans were more forthright. If they tired of a pope, he was well advised to leave, unquote. It's a very interesting book. The uh, anti-pope was, of course, Peter de Luna, who probably was the best of the lot and the last of the anti-popes. The Council of Constance, of course, ended the schism, but at a costly price. The emperor now controlled the church again. Well, so much for uh, that point, which I find the most interesting one. Now, another book which I read recently, a rather technical study, and not of general interest, and I don't know whether it is in print now. Uh, D.P. Kirby is the editor, St. Wilfred at Hexham published by Oriel Press in 1974, so it's probably out of print. St. Wilfred was one of the great abbots and then a bishop of England in the medieval era, or uh, very early, because he is before the Venerable uh, Bede. His dates are primarily in the latter half of the 600s, now, his work was quite remarkable. He had a great deal to do with aligning the Church of England with Rome. He felt that the Celtic Church, whatever its greatness in other respects, was subject to severe limitations. Moreover, he felt that the Church of Rome was outgoing. Among the things that had become quite commonplace and even required was a very large involvement in charity. The Church was virtually the sole dispenser of charity. In Italy, for example, it was required that a bishop give a quarter of his revenues to the poor. The 
monasteries in particular did a great deal of this. Now, Wilfred was quite a remarkable man, as I indicated, and one of the things that made him so remarkable was that here was a man of a good family, by the way, who was one of the great reformers of his day. Whenever Wilfred got into an argument with anyone, whether it was a bishop or a king, he had one remedy for the matter when he exhausted all his local efforts. What he did was to pick up his walking staff and take off for Rome. He made the journey from Northumbria to Rome on several occasions, on foot predominant, always really, except when he crossed the English Channel. He did it without any real rests. He made his last great journey to Rome when he was 70. When he traveled, if he heard of any problems in any monastery or church in the area, he made a side trip to set everybody straight. And with his fiery temperament and preaching and the moral authority he carried, he brought them into line. As a matter of fact, he usually got what he wanted out of the popes because <laughs> they were only too happy to give him what he wanted and get rid of this uh, tremendous nag because he was a nagger. He is described as a man of immense moral bellicosity. He knew what was right and he had no intention of wavering from his chosen path. A very remarkable man. The extent to which he Christianized his time is very great. We must remember that the last of the small kingdoms of England was nominally Christianized in Wilfred's lifetime. Well, another uh, minor point. I mentioned in dealing with the a great schism and the return of the papacy to Rome. The horrifying tortures that were inflicted upon the cardinals. Now, I want to make a point here. This was the 14th century. It was a time when the world was changing. The Renaissance was beginning to arise. Torture, as a result, was one of the civilized weapons that began to come into existence. Let me quote something from the Tudor Law of Treason by John Bellamy. This is a rather technical work published in London and also by the University of Toronto Press in 1979. I believe it is now out of print. I quote from page 109. Deliberate torture on the orders of the king was virtually unknown in medieval England, being against the tenor of the law, of the common law, as Fortescue 
had emphatically pointed out. Then he goes on to say there were three cases reported, but they all occurred in the second half of the 15th century. Now they started a little earlier on the continent. Some people make the mistake of assuming that uh, torture was routine because people in that era were supposedly more backward and primitive than we are. But torture came into being with the Renaissance and continued well into the modern era. While we're on the subject of the Middle Ages, I'd like to quote something in an entirely different vein. This is from a book which was, I think, just published probably, no, 1981, but I believe it's still available. Food in Civilization, How History Has Been Affected by Human Taste by Carson I.A. Ritchie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E. Beaufort Books, B-E-A-F-O-R-T, New York and Toronto. The first couple of chapters are nonsense, full of uh, evolutionary thinking and uh, all kinds of flat-out statements about what happened in prehistory and so on and on. However, when he comes up to historical documented areas, his book is interesting. Uh, there are one or two errors which indicate that he doesn't know much about farming. However, this is what appealed to me. In fact, uh, really delighted me. Uh, it tells us something about the Scottish temperament. He speaks of gluttony, and he says that the monastic dislike of overeating and overdrinking uh, was not unusual because medieval society discountenanced gluttony and regarded it as one of the seven deadly sins. As a result, he said, uh, it was uh, something of a real problem if you were addicted to gluttony because the social disapproval then was so much greater. But this, and I quote, in Scotland it, gluttony, became not merely a sin but a crime. Scots found guilty of overeating were strangled with a withy or peeled willow wand. Rope was scarce in Scotland or drowned in a running stream. Severe sumptuary laws telling the poor what they must eat and what they might not were also issued. This attitude must have issued from the natural puritanism of the Scots because food was not scarce in lowland Scotland. Immense herds of cattle were raised, and many of them were butchered on the spot for the sake of their tallow and hides, thus providing plenty of meat. Everyone ate oatmeal as porridge or bannocks and thrived on it. Scots were, uh, Scott raiders were formidable. 
because of the mobility afforded to them by their staple food. They could strike across the English border carrying all the supplies they needed, a bag of oatmeal and an iron griddle on the crupper of their swift Galloway nags. Fish also swarmed in Scotland's lakes and rivers. Apprentices in their articles or contracts stipulated that they should not be required to eat smoked salmon more than twice a week, unquote. Well, they certainly weren't doing badly if smoked salmon more than twice a week was unpleasant. <laughs> we have ridiculous ideas about the Middle Ages and the supposed poverty of people then. Poverty is a modern invention to a great degree. Well, now a little item that I thought was uh, very interesting in view of the fact that we have an election coming up and we will have two parties issuing platforms which will be forgotten the day after election. In a book by Thomas A. Bailey, Presidential Saints and Sinners, published by Collier Macmillan, in 1981, and probably out of print. We have this fact. I had forgotten this. At the time, of course, a great deal was made of it. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Democrats won in 1932. And the slogan of the party during that election was, Throw the Spenders Out. And as a result, we gained one of the all-time record spenders, FDR and his Democrats. Well, now very briefly to an interesting book by Sam Cohen, the inventor of the neutron bomb. And the title is The Truth About the Neutron Bomb, published in 1983 by William Morrow and Co Company. The book has some um, very, very important comments to make about national defense. What he says, and I'll quote, we cannot defend Europe. I'll go one step further. America cannot solve the problems of defending Europe with nuclear weapons, including neutron bombs. Why? because the Europeans are not truly concerned about defending themselves. They will not think seriously about nuclear weapons until America withdraws its troops and nuclear weapons uh, and, uh, from NATO and we force them to consider how they should defend themselves. Furthermore, we are unable to use nuclear weapons in Asian wars to contain Soviet aggression. And keep in mind that it was in the context of Asian scenarios that the neutron bomb concept was first conceived. Neutron weapons would have made great sense 20 years ago when we would have first have been able to produce them. At that time, the Soviets did not constitute a truly serious nuclear threat. Since then, however, the Russians have built up a huge stockpile of tactical nuclear weapons of much better quality than ours and they can use them against us with devastating effectiveness. This could result in our 
extinction. We've got to stop pretending that we can continue being knights in shining armor and protect everybody from the Russians. It is time for us to start worrying about our own defense for a change. We must ensure that we can survive the perils of the nuclear age. If we really want to, we can. But first we must stop squandering our resources on securing everyone else's survival. We've been unbelievably derelict about preparing our own country against attack. We spend about ten times as much money trying unsuccessfully to protect other countries around the world than we spend protecting ourselves. Currently, our strategic nuclear capabilities are weak and inadequate. This has seriously increased the possibility of nuclear assault on America, unquote. He also tells us some very grim facts about the stupidity of Congress and about NATO, which he says is, and I quote, is no longer a credible military pact. It is now an arrangement where if the war were to start, the United States would be committing physical suicide because we are completely vulnerable to nuclear attack. And the Europeans, if they could pull it off, and they'd sure want to try, would only have committed political suicide. They would have been occupied by communist armies, but they would have avoided physical suicide by not fighting. This is, in effect, what they are trying to accomplish, refusing to be put in a position where they can put up a credible fight. So what else is new? For centuries, European countries have been swallowed up by other European countries. To have been conquered and lived to fight again another day is par for the course over there. But our country has never been in this position before. It is not in our national genes to play this game, and we certainly don't want to get ourselves killed politically and physically, which is going to happen the way we are going. Well, it is a very worthwhile book, very bluntly stated. Let me uh, say one thing. When he developed the neutron bomb, he had trouble getting anyone to listen to his reasoning, his computations that had led to the discovery of the principle. And so he said he was at that time with Rand, which was working for uh, the government. And nobody anywhere in any of the offices seemed remotely interested in uh, hearing what he had to say because it seemed uh, odd, not uh, according to the current thinking. So he said, finally, and I quote, I did finally find that a good-looking blonde down the hall had expressed interest in hearing my briefing. I took my charts down to her office, closed the door, not for lascivious reasons, but rather because I felt a little silly giving a briefing to one person, and gave her the full treatment. She seemed, or at least professed, to be interested. So, some months later, I married her. 
From that time on, her interest in my nefarious nuclear activities has been approximately zero, perhaps a little less, unquote. <laughs> well, now very briefly to another item. One of the books I picked up recently, in fact, uh, the book on the anti-pope, as well as this one I picked up in Seattle, book shopping. We were there, Otto and John and myself and uh, Herb Titus for our fourth Christian Reconstruction Conference, and Clinton Elizabeth Miller took us to some bookstores where we had a ball locating all kinds of marvelous uh, Finds. This one, which was first printed in 1912 and I believe reprinted in 1966 and is out of print, The New Madrid Earthquake by Myron L. Fuller. Rather technical study, but I find very interesting because the New Madrid Earthquake is the greatest known record, uh, uh, earthquake on record. It took place from uh, the Great Lakes to the Gulf. It was felt over half the United States and in Canada. No record has ever equaled it for intensity. It took place in 1811 when there were very few people in the area. If it took place today, millions would die. The reason why this book was first written in 1912 and then reprinted in 66 is because its data is of moment to experts in the field. The experts believe that a repeat of this New Madrid earthquake is possible almost any time. There are, as most of you perhaps know better than I do, two types of faults, shallow ones which you have on the Pacific Rim, and the shallow faults go quite frequently. As a result, in California you have earthquakes quite commonly, and so too in Japan and elsewhere. The deep faults trigger perhaps once in a hundred or three to four hundred years. This means Illinois and Missouri and all the surrounding states are highly vulnerable. Uh, the area around Memphis, perhaps, most vulnerable of all. These deep faults do underlie a great deal of the eastern half of the United States, Europe, and other countries. The last major earthquake in Europe was the Lisbon earthquake in Portugal, 1750. Now to something else. One of the books I picked up on this trip was The Boys and Girls Reader by Emma Miller Bolinius, the sixth reader, published in 1919, and this particular one was uh, used in Texas schools. Now, 
by this time, 1919, school books were largely, if not entirely, de-Christianized. There are readings here for every holiday, but nothing Christian. There is a story by Tolstoy, where love is, there is God also, for Christmas. For Easter, there is a poem about tulips, no reference to Christ, apart from incidental reference in the Tolstoy story. So the books were de-Christianized. However, the work ethic and the free market economy was still very much present. To give you an example of what we've lost just since 1919, I'm going to read one poem with the introduction to it. Uh, this is on page 133, The Thinker by Burton Braley. And the introduction, did it ever occur to you that somebody's thought is responsible for everything that is done or made? The clothespin and the towering building alike had to be planned by someone. There is a thinker, a dreamer, a planner for every tool that has been made, for every appliance, every labor-saving device, for every project that demands manual work or labor with the hands to accomplish it. The thinker, then, means the inventor, the discoverer, or the man with brains who is superintendent or construction engineer sets tasks for the man who works with his hands and gives the necessary directions to have the task done. Here is a poem in which big thoughts challenge you in every line. See if you can find them. Now the poem. Back of the beating hammer by which the steel is wrought, back of the workshop's clamor, the seeker may find the thought the thought that is ever master of iron and steel, steam and steel, that rises above disaster and tramples it under heel. The drudge may fret and tinker or labor with lusty blows, but back of him stands the thinker, the clear-eyed man who knows. For into each plow or saber, each piece and part and whole, must go the brains of labor which gives the work a soul. Back of the motors humming, back of the bells that sing, back of the hammers drumming, back of the cranes that swing, there is the eye that scans them, watching through stress and strain. There is the mind which plans them, back of the brawn, the brain, might of the roaring boiler, force of the engine's thrust, strength of the sweating toiler, greatly in these we trust. But back of them stands the schemer, the thinker who drives things through, back of the job of the dreamer who's making the dream come true. Because children are not exposed to this kind of <clears throat> thinking today, we have the predictable results of our time. Now back to Toyohiko Kagawa's Songs from the Slums, which I started reading to you last time, and to read a few more. 
slum evening. I walk the bright, hot streets, and suddenly the sunshine shows how soiled my sleeve is. When the evening comes, tired, oh, so tired, I wander home to an empty house, lonely, cheerless, fireless, doorless, no one to greet me here. And so I drop down on the sill to watch the sunset. My sick neighbor there, the one whose head is stiff upon his neck, boils me some gruel and comes bringing it. I watch men thronging home, no work to do. They idle all day long, day after day. Slowly the sun goes down. Rice gruel and dried plums, the gruel thin and white, the plums blood red. I eat, night falls, I throw myself down upon my bed. On this, my disciples, these are songs from the slums. Three disciples have I, three or four. Little, shaven-headed, dirty-nosed Taco, and loud-voiced Jinko, who will not lose me from their sight, are number one and two. The beggar's chief is number three. He did not know how to bow at the Christmas feast, and so he turned swift somersault. The fourth is Baby Di Cobo. He cannot lisp his father's name, but all the day he calls Tente, Tente. So lovely. Twelve years old and sold. For hours she cried outside my door because she had to go. The little girl who loves me most is Kyoko. And this snowy morning, six in the morning, it is dark and cold. A little figure stands by the sake shop, her head bowed down against an empty cart. She wears the rags she sleeps in. Her mother has pawned her clothes. And as she starts for the factory, foodless, she has come so far and stopped. It is Yoshiko, shamed and hungry and cold, crying in the snow. And this one, when tears are mingled, Dawn, coming in through the grayness, lights up the place where she lies. I am sodden with sleep, but I waken as my starvelings fretful cries. She is here on the floor beside me, wrapped in rags that stink. I change them. I hold her to feed her, and sobs as she struggles to drink. Three days have I now been a woman with a mother's heart in my breast. Do I doze but an hour? Then she whimpers, and I spring to soothe her to rest. Thin, little, dirty baby, wailing with pain all the while. But I taste the bliss that no life should miss. 
when I look in her eyes and smile. Ah, she is ill, little is she. Life has abused her so, safe from the fiend who had meant to kill her. Fever has laid her low. Through the night I labored to save her. We two were all alone, sharp in the fearful stillness. The neighbor's clock struck one. Then walls went creaking, creaking, blackened timbers grown, and this house by murdered, murder haunted. The low-hung ceilings moaned. Boards in the floor beneath us, which have sucked blood warm and bright, held their breath and shrieked of death into the ghostly night. Why is the world so cruel? Seen with Ishi's eyes, the earth and all things in it is a mountain pile of ice. Then do you pity Ishi? I need your pity, too. I must help. I must help. But I am helpless. Oh, to be taught what to do. Men are consoled by their women, but this scrap in my tired arm lies a shriveled doll from the junk heap. And the strong man who holds her cries. Why are you quiet, Ishii? Why are your eyes shut? Why? Wait, oh wait, little sick one. It is too soon to die. Think of my struggle to save you. Will you not stay with me? Listen, death. Death shall not take you. I have no burial fee. How now, through the days of this dreadful plight, do I wince at a bedbug's filthy bite. Cry again, little Ishii. Cry once more, once more. What will it take to make you wake? For I cannot let you go. I call, but you do not hear me. I clasp you. You do not move. It is not to pain I would bring you again. There is love in the world. There is love. Will she not cry? I shall make her. Here in my close embrace, I kiss her wan lips growing grayer. My drawn face touches her face. Fast are my frightened tears flowing, falling on Ishi's eyes. With her cold, still tears, they are mingled. Oh, God, at last, she cries. Well, our time is virtually up, and that's it for this time. I shall look forward to being with you again in two weeks. Until then, God bless you all.